Good evening, everyone. How are you doing tonight? Um, I was thinking as we were singing that last song about God's kindness, love, grace, and mercy, how the more I learn to experience that for myself, the more that it can overflow out of me to the people around me. And so as we look at hospitality tonight, let's, let's keep that in mind. When we experience God's hospitality towards us, then it just compels us to share that with the people around us. Um, I, I want to introduce you to our family. Some of you have already met our family this way, but there might be a few of you here who haven't. These are the folks we're flying home to tomorrow. Um, Haley is 26. Noah is 25, and Isaiah is 23. And these are the people that we've been learning how to show hospitality and love and grace and mercy with for the last, well, since they've been born and even before that. And so we're just happy tonight to share with you a little bit of what we've experienced and um, some of our learning along the way. Um, Back in San Francisco, Mark and I run an organization called Reimagine, and we seek to help people put the teachings of Jesus into practice in their everyday life. So we work with um, people who are interested in following Jesus or even curious about Jesus. We work with uh, church leaders and groups of fellow Christians like you. And over the weekend here, we've had a chance to take a stab at that. We looked at uh, belonging and becoming, creating a thriving family culture, and another book we wrote called Free, How to Spend Your Time and Money on What Matters Most, just a little bit yesterday. And um, tonight we're going to share with you from um, a resource that Mark's worked on around the Beatitudes, how we can look at those teachings of Jesus and put those into practice in our everyday life. And we think there's a couple of them that have to do with hospitality or that can help us move towards an attitude of hospitality in our lives. And um, yeah, so I, um, when I think about hospitality, there's a lot of images that come into our mind. But one definition that I've learned to work with with hospitality, and I might share a couple of these this evening, but the one that's coming to mind right now is Hospitality is welcoming another person as though he or she were Jesus coming to us. And how would we respond to Jesus? And the gospel supports this. It says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Um, it's in these people that we can respond to Jesus' invitation to show up and love him as well. So um, here's a couple other verses that, that we see in the scriptures about hospitality. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and God's love is made complete in us. In other words, people can see God when we love each other. We become the embodiment of God's love. And that's another definition I like to use for hospitality, the embodiment of love um, towards others. And finally, we have a really direct instruction in Romans. Share with God's people who are in need practice hospitality. And as we go on tonight, uh, we'll explore a little bit what that could look like. So I wanted to share just a, a quick little story. This, the person in this story is named Meredith. And we've known Meredith since she was 12 years old. Seven years old. Oh, seven. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> we've known Meredith a really long time. She's the one holding our daughter, both when our daughter was probably nine and she was about 22 there. So um, Meredith's been in our life a long time, and there was a period of time when Meredith really needed to get away from the home that she grew up in and go somewhere else that felt more um, nourishing and safe. And so Meredith lived with our family from about age 17 
to 19 or 20, and she shares holidays with us now. She's kind of like a sister and she's to almost, our daughter. She's almost 40 now, baby. Yeah, and she's, <laughs> she's got a doctorate in psychology now. But she's been part of our family's journey for a really long time. And maybe her and Haley are so close because they shared a 8-by-12-foot uh, bedroom, 8-by-10-foot bedroom for a year. Yep. Yep. She's definitely family. Yes. Fr- friends who are like family. <laughs> yes. And, um, and so I, I'd like to think that it was enriching for Meredith to come and live with our family for a while, but it's definitely enriched our family as well to um, become family with Meredith. And, and that continues. So we're going to tip, uh, in order to practice hospitality well, we need to get our hearts right and our thinking uh, straight. Uh, and th- when we do that, I think even radical hospitality becomes something that's easy and light and makes sense to do. And so there's a couple of the Beatitudes that I think really touch on this and will help soften our hearts towards the, the invitation to welcome. Um, I want to, as, as you've heard, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on the Beatitudes the last few years, and Lisa and I together have been teaching on the Beatitudes all over the world. And um, when in my research uh, in this, I came across uh, a person by the name of E. Stanley Jones, who was a missionary in India back in, I believe, the 1930s and 1940s. He happened to have become friends with a person named Mahatma Gandhi. And he eventually wrote a book about Gandhi um, that got in the hands of a young uh, preacher named Martin Luther King Jr., who read those words of Gandhi and was inspired in his efforts towards civil rights in in our country. It's a little-known fact that Mahatma Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes every morning at the beginning of his day and that he was deeply informed by the teachings of Jesus, and it's what informed his civil rights work both in South Africa and in India. And in a little book that, um, that E. Stanley Jones wrote about the Sermon on the Mount, he said this about Gandhi. He said, A little man in a loincloth in India picks out from the Sermon on the Mount one of its central principles, applies it as a method for gaining human freedom, and the world, challenged and charmed, bends over to catch the significance of this great sight. It is important of what would happen if we would take the whole of the Sermon on the Mount and apply it to the whole of life. It would renew our Christianity, and it would renew our world. In other words, if someone who doesn't identify as a, as a, as a Christian pays that mo- much attention to the instructions Jesus gave about life in the real world, imagine those of us who, who, um, who identify Christ as Lord and Savior in our lives, if we would take Jesus equally seriously, how it would change New South Wales, how it would change Australia, how it would change our world. So some of you have been with me before and know that I like to mix it up a bit. And I feel like, Lisa, it's kind of, it's casual Sunday night. So we can kind of banter a little bit, get people talking a little bit. I might, we might invite you to stand up at this, uh, a couple of times and strike some poses with us. Let's mix it up. Let's make this fun. All right. Sound good? And, um, and I'm even going to invite you to participate in our talk and have you turn and do a little bit of a conversation with one another, and we'll get some feedback from you on it. But let's dip in together. One thing I see in the Beatitudes is Jesus making a contrast between our first instincts and the possibilities of life in the kingdom of God, life in true reality. We have distorted views about who we are, who God is, and how life works when we're born into this world. And until we encounter the presence of the living God, and get instructed in what's true reality, we, we're in what uh, Scripture often calls the kingdom of darkness. And you and I, the day we, that we became Christians, did not automatically zap fully into the kingdom of light. Some of our thinking and some of our behavior is still kind of, we're kind of hanging between the two possibilities here. And spiritual formation or discipleship is the process of taking slow, methodical, and persistent steps to surrender all of our lives, all of our thinking and doing to the rule and reign of the Creator. And I think the Beatitudes point out some of those shifts, and I want to look at two of them tonight. The first one is this. 
in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Um, when we were small children, one of our jobs was to develop, to develop a sense of a moral compass. And to do this, we, um, we th- ha- thought in patterns like, what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do? When we watched a TV show or we read books, we're wondering, who's the good guy in the story? Who's the bad guy? Do you remember doing this? And then we do the same thing with ourselves. Yeah, you remember doing that. You still do it, right? And then we also were thinking, am I a good boy or am I a bad boy? Or am I a good girl or am I a bad girl? You guys have thought these sorts of things too? Yeah, wondering, am I good, am I, am I good or bad, right? And we get into this mentality of, I would say, judgment. And there's something about how our brains are wired where if we see somebody doing something that's not right, we want to see them get punished. Tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And, and we do the same thing to, to ourselves. If we don't measure up to what we know is the standard, we'll even punish ourselves and live with a sense of less than. And it's a posture that I would call something like this, a posture of measuring. So I want you to put your hands up like this, and I want you to look around the room and do a little bit of measuring. I used to watch a Canadian comedy show where they, one of the characters would stand in a town square, look at people, and go, I squish you. I squish your head. I squish you. So I want you to do, do that to a couple of people. Look far across the room. I squish you. I squish you. I squish your head. This mentality, which was necessary for us to develop our sense of right and wrong, can, if we don't learn to grow beyond it, can become toxic. So that all we do is look at, the, look at each other for the glass half empty, look for the flaws. And I think it's something that gets in the way of connection and gets in the way of welcome. If we see somebody who's not living up to our standard, we push them away. And the gospel invites us into a higher level of consciousness, the consciousness of the kingdom. So slap down that judging hand. And the gospel invites us to instead learn to look with compassion. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We want to, would we want to live in the world that's tit for tat, where everybody gets exactly what, what they deserve? I know for me, I want to be treated in a way that's actually better than my actions deserve. I'm going to invite you to stand up a second, and we, we're going to practice moving from judgment to compassion. I'm going to, I'm going to um, lead you guys in a different posture right now, and I'm going to warn you, it's going to be a little bit awkward, but, but we can do it. We're going to try and do this a bit quietly. I would like you to make the shape of a heart like Mark is. And look through and, it. And look through it. And now I want you to turn that gaze toward one other person in the room. Make sure everybody's got a partner. And um, I want you to keep looking through that gaze. See if you can have your giggle and get it over with. And now listen as I kind of coach you through this. If you're standing far away, take a couple steps. Get closer to each other. You don't have to look across the aisle. There you go. All right. And try and hold it silently so you can listen to Lisa guiding you. So as you're looking at this person, I want you to remember a couple of things. The person that you're looking at is made in the image of God. They are a beloved child of God. Each part of their personality, the color of their eyes, the family they were born into, everything about them was on purpose. How does it look, how does it feel to look at someone else with such tenderness and awareness of who they are? You might even want to whisper or say to them out loud, beloved child of God, may you be well. Okay, wait a minute. We've got one other thing to the do love here. The love child of God, may you be well. I also want you to um, think about this. Someone is looking at you right now and realizing that you are a beloved child of God. Mm. 
This is the gaze that your creator has for you and for each person on earth. Okay, you All right, can you put guys your hands can put down. your hands and down. And if you need to, you need hug it out <laughs> if you feel comfortable. No viruses. One made a gap. <laughs> Lisa, um, I was suddenly thinking about when we were doing this activity in Wales. And I think yes. you can tell it real quick. We were in the middle of this activity, and suddenly I realized that the person sitting on the front row was someone who can't see with their eyes. And I was like, oh, no, we created an activity that is not inclusive here. And as Lisa's guiding it, I, I went to this uh, dear person and I said, sister, would you mind if I put my hands on your cheeks? And I said, you're welcome to put your hands on my cheeks as we do this. And we held each other's faces and um, saw each other in that way. It's really special. In the scriptures, we see how Jesus looked at different people. Um, when Jesus looked at people, um, he saw them for who they, they were. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And we can train ourselves to have the eyes and the heart of Jesus when we look at the people around us. Um, this doesn't come easy, and it's something that we have to train for. Um, we have lived for the last 22 years in a neighborhood that is very diverse in San Francisco, and lots of different kinds of people. And I had a new experience that I'd never had before after we moved to San Francisco. I would walk out my door and suddenly I was getting a lot of attention from some males in my neighborhood. And they would say things like, hey, baby, you're looking fine today. You want to, uh, you know, I won't repeat everything they said. But it was intimidating and it was kind of scary. And, um, and I think that was the game. Like, I'm going to say something to make you feel uncomfortable and then I'll feel like I've got some power, was sort of the game that they were playing. Um, and so at first, what I did is I decided, I'm gonna do two things. I'm gonna put on what I call my game face, my street face, and I'm just gonna walk down the street and I don't hear things and I don't see people. And the other thing I began to do is I began to notice that when that happened, that person usually looked a certain way that was different than me. And so anybody who resembled that profile, I would change my direction, maybe cross the street, uh, definitely put my game face on if there was a group of guys that looked that way, and um, try to keep myself safe. But a few years ago, I thought, I'm not feeling very comfortable with my reaction here because I don't think that this is Jesus' heart to my neighbors. And so I started thinking a little bit about it. And I thought, I think I need to be looking in a different way. I think I need to um, do a little more of this thing and think about who is this person that is walking past me. So I started playing a game with myself. Um, I would see somebody where it would rise up in me that, oh, I'm going to cross the street. And I think, no, this person is somebody's son, somebody's husband, maybe somebody's father. And they're on their way somewhere. I wonder where they're going. I wonder if they're bringing flowers to their mom, to their girlfriend. What's going to happen? Like, where are they? Are they headed home from work? Are they going to the grocery store? And slowly, I began to remember, ah, oh, this is a person. And they're going about many of the same tasks of their life that I am. And you know what? I might be risking somebody saying something uncomfortable to me, but I'm also opening myself up to having some real interactions with people. And I started experimenting after a while with giving a smile, commenting on the, the child who seemed happy about whatever was happening, 
and having some real interactions with people. And it really shifted my thinking and um, shifted how I see my neighbor and has helped me not to think of this category of people as this is all the same, same thing. And I feel better about, um, how would I say it, that, that I'm beginning to see more like Jesus. It's still a practice, and sometimes things still come up, but I can go back to this practice of looking at somebody and remembering, this is somebody made in the image of God, somebody with dignity and worth, and um, I can respond to them as such. And now you have lots of friends around the neighborhood. I do. <laughs> a second beatitude that I think prepares us to uh, give and receive hospitality is one in which Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Um, one thing I love about small children is that they don't have a divide between what they think and what they might say. So if they're happy, you know it. If they're sad, you know it. If they want something, they just come out and tell you. I had a three-year-old um, that we had breakfast with a few months ago, and she gave me a note, and it said, Dear Mr. Mark, I would like you to send me a gift in the mail. And her parents were like, you should do that. And I said, no, I love it. She's just saying what's inside. But those of us who are a bit older here, we, older than three or four, we've learned to create something that psychologists often call a persona, uh, something, a mask that we wear that hides what our true thoughts and feelings are. And because we wonder, if you knew the truth about me, would you accept me? So I want you to put your persona up like this for just a second. And when we're wearing our personas, when we're faking it to make it, um, when there's a divide between what's in our heart and what we're willing to share, when, our, when there's a difference between what we say, um, how we, our, we say yes with our mouth and we meant no, or we say no and we meant yes, it creates a divide between us and every other being. We do this with our creator, thinking that we need to hide like Adam and Eve did, and we also do it with one another. And so if I'm wearing my persona, we stand up and you're wearing yours, how close of a relationship can we have? We're only reacting to the masks, right? And this is why the gospel invites us into a more authentic way, first with God, where we take off our masks, step out into the light, do a little jazz hands to just emphasize that. Here I am, and we say, God, here's the truth about me. Here's what's hard. Here's how I've failed. Here's my sin. Trusting that if we'll step into the, out, into the light, God's love heals and transforms and makes new what's brought into the light. And we can do the same thing with one another. Maybe it's not safe to do this with every person, but we're invited to take risks to step out towards one another and say, here's the real me. And Jesus demonstrated this in his relationships of a radical openness to people in his life. And if we want to experience that kind of connection, we're also invited into that level of hospitality as well. Yeah, another way I would say it is that um, another quality of hospitality is that we're creating a, a space of welcome and vulnerability between two people. Um, sometimes when we use the word hospitality, um, we get pictures in our head. In, in my country, we would, if, if I said Martha Stewart, you would have this picture in your head of perfect hospitality, meaning the house is immaculate, you have people over for this three-course dinner, and there's probably a theme to it too, you know what I mean? And that you've got matching dishware, and you've got uh, maybe even a little take-home present that you made by hand for them. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? This is the image that we get sometimes of hospitality. Um, but hospitality, true hospitality, embraces the imperfection. It lets others see our imperfections and receives them openly with theirs and creates a space of safety. This is something that I've had to learn over and over and over. Because there's times when that thing rises up in me and I want people just to see the best. I want the house to be perfectly clean. I, I hear my mom's voice saying, what would people think? I wanna put out the big spread. But I found that it's more sustainable 
if I can throw on a pot of soup, put out a hunk of bread, and let people come in when, when it works. And sometimes hospitality is really inconvenient because people's needs don't always coincide tidily with my schedule. But welcoming each other just as is is part of the way that we're welcomed by our creator. And when we extend that to other people, um, we're showing them his love. So now is the time to show hospitality. Um, I used to hear people say, well, I'll show hospitality when we have a bigger house, when we have more money, when we have... When we get the remodel done. Yeah. And um, I'll tell you a little story on ourselves. Um, One day, as you can see in this picture, do you see that orange wall? That's where the cupboards fell off the wall. Like we were in the other room one day and we heard a noise and the cupboards had fallen off the wall. So I guess we're in the middle of a remodel. And um, in the middle of that remodel, Mark, we were on vacation and Mark broke his collarbone. So this was an extended remodel. We're a do-it-yourself family, so I was doing all the work of remodeling. Yep. And so a friend of mine had called and said, hey, we're thinking of coming to California with our four kids, and we'd love to visit you guys. And I said, hey, our bathroom and kitchen are torn apart, but if you want to come, we would so love to see you and spend time with you. We'll make it work. And so, um, so they came, and we cooked on the um, a skillet? camp stove. Do you know what I mean? Like with the two-burner thing, and you put the propane tank in, and um, we washed the dishes in the bathtub. And, um, so and when we you're made showering, you kind of got spaghetti sauce and olive oil <laughs> in between your toes. <laughs> but the thing was, is that I wanted to be with my friend. And the conditions weren't perfect, but that was the time we had. So we made it work, and we actually made a great memory. We still talk about the time that we had seven kids and four adults in a house with no kitchen and no bathroom. (laughs) And um, our house was like that long term, so if we wanted to continue having people over, we had to do it in an imperfect way. And um, I think it's beautiful to be able to let us see each other in our imperfections. Um, I want to read one more scripture, and I'll just remind you of something I said earlier. One of the qualities of hospitality is that we're welcoming one another as if the other person was Jesus. Jesus said, was telling a story, and in part of it, he's, he's, the story goes on and on, and he says, Lord, when did we, people said, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And then the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And... um, Yeah, so I'd like us to think, who are the outcast, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, or the lonely, where you live here? In my neighborhood, it's the homeless people, it's elderly people who we don't know are there because maybe they don't get out much and they're lonely. Um, It's the undocumented immigrant who is scared to go outside much, but had to flee whatever circumstances were going on in their own country. It's, it's the Muslim who's not very welcomed by my, by my country. Um, there's so many people who, who feel um, alone in our societies. I'd like you right now to turn to someone next to you and think about who in your neighborhood, who in on the Central Coast. Who on the Central Coast would fit into those categories? Just take about two minutes and each share a couple of things. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Let's keep talking, but talk all together. I want to give you a, I want to give you a chance to feedback. What are some of the kinds of people that you brainstormed might be who Jesus would have considered the least of these who are, are here on the Central Coast? What came to mind? The elderly. The elderly. Yes. I have a question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of stuff being done amongst our minority groups, amongst what, what we sort of say. Mm-hmm. And I've worked a lot in community. So I understand exactly what you guys are saying, and I'm very encouraged by it. But the thing that I'm hearing, or the thing that I'm really struggling with, is um, how much do you think Yeah. Yeah, I would su- uh, we're going to get to that, but I would suggest that um, that uh, really we're trying to address what 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 an individual in a community can do to offer welcome, and um, rather than thinking that we're we're going to be problem focused or even solution focused, it's what are we being? What is that God's Spirit inviting us to be and do together? So um, I, I, I hope that makes some sense to you. That we're what's the opportunity here, and we can have one or two approach, one of two approaches to these invitations of Jesus. Uh, one, we can feel like it's a should and an obligation, or we could feel like it's an invitation to say, Jesus modeled a way of being whole community together, and we're in community here. Who who isn't here? Who's being left out? And are there some small steps we could take to learn to invite others in with us and offer greater welcome? I think, too, there's so, ma- there's so, many, um, there's so many different personalities in the room. Mark and I interact very differently with people and have varying capacities. And so it's a matter of listening to God's spirit and hearing where your next step is. And even with hospitality, there's anything from being friendly with somebody in the checkout line and helping them feel a little bit more welcome in their day to inviting people to live with you. And I think we just need to listen carefully mm-hmm. to what God, God is inviting us into next. What's your next step? A friend of ours is a social worker in San Francisco, and they found a, a sign on an apartment door that said, if someone smiles at me on my way to the Golden Gate Bridge to jump off to die by suicide, I won't do it. So you could see, so I think that's maybe an example of small things we can do to open our hearts more, to resonate with the love that the Creator has. I have a, a bit more of an extended story about what I would consider to be radical hospitality. I'm a little hesitant to share it for a couple of reasons. Um, it, uh, it appeared in my first book that was called Soul Graffiti. We don't have copies of it here, but I think it's probably available um, online through... Um, through uh, the big place where we buy stuff online. And um, the, uh, here's my hesitation. One is I'm afraid it makes me look a little too much more like a hero than I actually am. Uh, a second hesitation is uh, it's a pretty evocative story. And on a brain level, you're gonna f- you may feel moved by this story, and it almost will make you feel like you did something because, because of, what, of the events that happened. And um, uh, so there's, there's a, there's a, that's a bit pro- problematic. Uh, the other hesitation, finally, is that it's kind of a, uh, there's some sordid details to this story. 
And we have some young ones with us tonight, so I'm going to pre-apologize for some of the spicier details, and I'll do some editing on the fly. So, but I wanted to give you enough of a taste of what, what this exchange was about. And really, it's a story about me as a young man trying to, trying to figure out how to live more radically in the ways of Jesus, in the ways that I was feeling invited. We'd started a church community, and we were really interested in not just knowing Scripture well, but learning to practice it. And so we'd encourage each other to take new steps. And um, one day I was talking with my friend Joseph, and we were reading some of the passages that we looked at here, and we are like, how could we be a friend to someone who doesn't have friends, someone who's on the outside and might feel lonely? And so one night on the bus coming home from work, Joseph met an older person who invited him to come visit him, and Joseph invited me along. And so I'm going to pick up the story there, and it goes like this. Come on in, boys. Will you smoke a joint with me? The old man said as Joseph and I climbed the steps of the rusty old school bus, searching for a place to sit. The bus, parked in a vacant lot on Potrero Hill, was painted in bold letters that read, I have been conducting experiments on myself for, four, for 30 years, exploring the mysteries of chemistry and health. My prescription, eat a clove of garlic and drink your own urine twice a day. Joseph and I glanced at each other and wondered, what are we getting ourselves into? Shaking my hand, the small old man wearing a black evening gown took a bow saying, you may call me Emperor Arcadia. Seated again, his arthritic hand struggled to roll a joint while he spoke. I've been taking speed for 30 years, medicating myself, and the combination of methamphetamines and special topical chemicals is curing me of all human diseases. As he continued, we stole glances around the crowded old bus containing soiled clothes, salvaged computer monitors, and buckets and buckets of urine. A mix of curious smells strained my nose for recognition. The government has lied to us. It's a conspiracy to exterminate the planet. If I were in charge, I would burn all the money and declare the entire planet monetary and class-free. We would all be equal and wealthy. I attempted to break into his monologue with a question. Emperor, how long have you lived in San Francisco? Too long. Do you have an estate in the country you'd like me to be the caretaker of? I tried again. How old are you? I'm not old. I'm as young as they come. Persisting, I asked, Emperor, where did you grow up? Grow up? I haven't grown up. And then he returned to his speech. Boys, I advise you to drink your own urine twice a day. Those golden showers will cure all that ails you. When the emperor could sense that we were now only listening to be polite, he became defensive. I can see that you don't believe me, but you had better. I'm a messenger from God. Joseph spoke. Well, what a coincidence. We're also followers of God's messenger, Jesus. That was the wrong thing to say. Uh, the emperor grew agitated and exclaimed, I'm Jesus Christ, the GD Messiah. Jesus isn't coming back, and, if you, and so you better listen to me. And if you don't believe me, get out of my bus. We groped for a diplomatic way to end our visit. It was good to meet you, emperor, I said weakly befuddled by this strange encounter, and I turned to Joseph. Well, I guess our attempt to care failed, I said. We can't make someone be our friend if they don't want to, Joseph replied. So we thought we were off the hook, and I think we had a common experience where you try and reach out. You're not quite sure how to care for that person. It doesn't go very well, and you go, I'll go back to what I know. But a few months later, I ran into the emperor at a plaza downtown. Um, slumped over, sunburned, haggard, and sitting in a wheelchair. I hardly recognized him. He, yet he was dressed impeccably, decked out in a costume crown and bright gold jewelry, wielding a royal emulet in his jittering hand. And when I greeted him, he smiled warmly, saying, I'm doing better than ever, can't you see? I was just going to get something to eat. Would you like to join me? Recalling our first encounter, I was a bit taken back by this new friendliness, but he insisted on buying me a strawberry shake, and as he went up to pay, several tablets of methamphetamines fell from his wallet out onto the counter. Sitting in a booth across from me, he repeated verbatim the monologue from our first visit. I looked at him intently, his hands brown with filth, dirt caught in the creases of his worn skin, and that mouth 
grotesque, toothless, rotting, and wildly chomping chicken sandwich. My stomach turned. Sputtering incoherently now, he was desperately trying to get through to me as his spit and chicken sandwich landed on my cheek. I stared into his hazel green eyes, wondering what he was thinking and feeling inside. Emperor, what has it been like living by yourself in that bus all these years? He paused dramatically. It feels lonely sometimes. I pressed for more. What do you do when you're feeling lonely? Uh, I lock myself in my bus for three or four days, or I come down to this corner. And then he quickly changed the subject. Boy, I need to get a shower. And hey, look at him. I'd sure like to have him on a chain to dominate. I racked my conflicted brain and heart to understand. Am I wasting my time? Or is this man teaching me something about the compassion of Jesus? Is an act of love only significant because of the change it produces? Or can the meaning be in the act itself? I realized that as a follower of the way, I was being invited to love the emperor despite his prickly hostility and sometimes highly unusual personal habits. A few days later, Joseph and I stopped by the emperor's bus. More sedated, he expressed how glad he was to see us and explained that he just completed one of his cycles of treatment, which consisted of uh, or inv involved covering his entire body with menthol vapor rub, followed by petroleum jelly, and then taking a hit of methamphetamines. You see, we all have these bugs living in our bodies that are killing us, and slowly I'm sweating them out. He then explained how he washes in a solution of vinegar, bleach, dish soap, and the items that were in those buckets. The whole process takes three days, but see how young and fresh my skin looks? Pretty good for being 63 years old, I'd say. Emperor... Is there anything we can do for you, I asked. Well, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten for days. My legs aren't working too good, and I can't get to the store. Handing us some money, he asked us to buy him an Italian sausage sandwich. And make sure you get it with mayonnaise and provolone cheese. Oh, and buy yourself some sandwiches with my money, too. They're very delicious. Along with other friends from our church, we began visiting the emperor several times a week, bringing groceries helping cut his hair or clip his toenails, and cleaning up around his camp. Gradually, he began to trust us more and revealed more about himself. His real name was Robert. Estranged from his family after years in mental institutions, he'd moved west from Wisconsin. During the 1970s, he was something of a celebrity in San Francisco's gay club scene, hosting naked pool on Sunday afternoons at a popular bar south of Market, where he pranced around the pool table exchanging fiery jabs with patrons. The club owner let him live in the basement of that building for many years. We learned that the emperor was locally famous for crashing society balls, civic celebrations, and parades, announcing himself swathed in a velvet cape and crown, accompanied by his matching miniature poodles on tiny leashes. As he got older and more peculiar, he lost his social currency and became more and more isolated. The emperor's health continued to deteriorate, and by December, he was confined strictly to his wheelchair. We pleaded with him to move into an assisted living facility, and we um, called the um, county health services and invited a nurse to come and uh, check up on him and uh, try and get the paperwork started for that. But instead, the emperor predicted that the apocalypse would come by the first of the year. And then I'm going to kill myself on New Year's Eve, he told us, by mixing vodka with a fatal dose of phenobarbital. I'd be so sad if you choose to kill yourself, I told him. Why should you care if I live or die, he asked indignantly. Emperor, you're valuable to God and the people who love you. We'd miss you. Nobody's ever loved me, he replied bitterly. I'm really sorry you feel that way. After all this time we've spent together, I hope that you might consider Joseph and me to be your friends. At Christmas, we decided to throw a party for the emperor, including his favorite foods and a birthday cake. I told him that I was going to bring my family along so we would, he would need to be on his best behavior. We could never predict what the emperor would say or do. And remember, this is the PG-13 version of the real story. So just imagine the kinds of things that I was seeing and hearing. There was a full moon on that December evening when I knocked at the door to the emperor's bus. He came out wearing an elegant purple bonnet with freshly painted fingernails. A thin young woman who we knew worked as a sex worker lived in a trailer on the street nearby. 
She joined us along with one of her clients. We ate by candlelight, serenaded by music from a transistor radio, and we talked and we laughed, and the emperor declared that this food was delicious. After dinner, Lisa put candles on the cake, and I said, let's sing happy birthday. Um, who could we sing happy birthday to, hoping that we might celebrate the emperor's birthday with him? But just then, beaming, our three-year-old son Noah blurted out, Papa, Papa, it's Christmas time. Let's sing happy birthday to Jesus. I panicked. That was the worst thing I could imagine mentioning in front of the emperor, and I waited to see what he would do. But slowly, with a big toothless grin, he said, Yes, yes, let's sing happy birthday to Jesus. So under a clear and starry night, the eight of us sang together. Lisa and me, a streetwalker and her John, a 63-year-old drag queen, and three small blonde children with red rosy cheeks. As I helped the emperor back into his bus, he turned to me and said, This has been the best night of my whole life. Thank you. Early Sunday morning, Joseph and I knocked at the door to the emperor's bus. There was no response, but we heard faintly groaning from inside. Eventually, we broke down the door and found the emperor collapsed on the floor, lying in a pool of his own waste. He tried to talk, and through slurred speech, we deciphered that he wanted something to drink. We sat him up and gave, and gave him something, and as we began to change his clothes and wash his body, what had happened slowly dawned on us. He had taken the phenobarbital as planned. The rest of our group had just arrived when we called for the ambulance. As the paramedics lifted him onto the gurney, he pleaded for me to stay beside him. I rode along to the hospital in the back of the ambulance, holding his hand. And at the emergency room, he was stabilized. A nurse invited me into the examining room, and I stood with him alone. Emperor, I said, it's Mark. With his eyes still shut, he murmured, I wanted to die. Why did you save my life? I hesitated for a moment, searching for words. You're my friend, and I care about you. Agitated and still slurring, he asked, But why? Why do you care about me? And then louder and more desperately, he repeated, Why do you care about me? Slowly, I lifted my hand and began to caress his bald head. Emperor, we're all loved, I said. And then I heard him snoring and watched his chest rise and fall with each belabored breath. I stood there for a long time praying and thinking about this man who felt so lonely that it was nearly impossible for him to imagine that anyone would care. When Joseph and I arrived at the hospital the next day, the emperor was wide awake and smiling. With hugs, he greeted us long-lost sons and quickly handed Joseph some money to go and buy each of us a prime rib dinner from his favorite dive restaurant. The hospital psychologist discreetly invited me over into her office, and as I shared what I knew, I had the strange realization that although I'd only known the emperor for six months, I was probably closer to him now than anyone else alive. Joseph returned with those three prime rib dinners, and we sat down at the table together. We watched the Super Bowl. We laughed, and we talked, and the emperor declared that this meal was delicious. So I realize that there may be something uh, uniquely absurd to this story, but what I do know is that I feel most alive when I'm testing the limits of my own boundaries, finding a source of love in God's care that is greater than my own, and discovering beauty and hospitality in unexpected places. So you may not have an emperor in your life, but I think that if each person in this room had one person that was lonely or on the margins or sick or downcast, befriend them, we would make a big difference in our neighborhoods and in the places that we live. And so I'd like to invite you into a couple of practices this week. The first one is to practice eyes of compassion like you started doing in this room already, but do it 
do it as you're walking through your day. In fact, choose, choose a time this week when you're going to be somewhere where there's a lot of people. And as you walk around, intentionally look at each person that you see and um, think to yourself, beloved child of God, may you be well. And especially say that when you look at someone and you feel that thing coming up inside of you, like I shared in my story, that's especially the time to be looking with eyes of compassion. And the second thing that I would invite you into is to practice radical hospitality. Take your next step to welcome an unlikely person into your life, whatever that step is and whoever it might be. Mm. I want to thank you all for letting us uh, spend a better part of almost a week with you and uh, an extra bit of time tonight to give us the chance to kind of roll out and explore some of this. I realize some of what we shared brings up more questions than answers, and, um, and that's okay. You know, these are things to wrestle with and search our hearts about to figure out what those next steps are. I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and uh, we're going to close with a prayer that we can pray together that's inspired by the Beatitudes. Um, you can read the words on the screen and just do the postures as I speak these words. Lord, today, may we live with open hands, mourn what's broken, serve with self-respect, use our power for good, look with compassion, walk in honesty, reach past difference, suffer for love, and live fearlessly, following your way of radical love. Amen. Thank you.